I know that there is a race to go to space. And so it, for me, it was a win-win situation. This is Spacewatch Daily, the place to get insights into this second great space race. I'm David Ariosto. By doing that, you're solving a problem for astronauts, but also you're solving the leading cause of death on Earth. So that was Nadia Marouf. But before I tell you who she is, I've got to tell you how I met this woman, or at least where I met her. Um, it technically said Utah on the map, but on approach to this place, it just generally looked like Mars. First of all, it was in, in an isolated desert, surrounded by these red rock formations, and just a general barrenness that made you think, okay, this could be the, the Martian surface. So I drove out there to this place called the Mars Desert Research Station, taking this Jeep that I rented, um, driving around canyons and over sand dunes to get to this place. You, you come around this bend, and there it is, this white dome, otherworldly looking structure called the HAB, or the Habitat as they called it, powered by these independent generators and solar panels with satellite comms. And it basically looks like you're just stumbling upon the beginnings of a Martian colony, this artificial living quarters where teams basically from, of scientists from all over the world are doing research. These are basically analog astronaut missions meant to simulate what life is like on the red planet. So I parked the Jeep next to this set of rovers, which I have to tell you in and of itself feels kind of weird, and I just walk over. I walk over to these series of simulated airlock doors. After a bit of knocking, this woman with this sort of tech-infused headband opens the door, and that woman was Nadia, whom I guess I can now tell you who she actually is. Nadia Marouf is a clinical scientist at the University of Calgary and is a part of a Mars analog team doing essentially simulated missions alongside other scientists from Italy and France and a few other nations to figure out just how a trip to Mars would go, but also kind of what can be gleaned from it in terms of applications back here on Earth. And for Nadia, she was focused basically on the impacts of prolonged microgravity on the human body, which, which can be a lot. Everything from bone density loss to muscle atrophy, plasma loss, these weird shifts of fluids in your body, and ultimately the effects on the heart as well. Um, there are essentially like these concerns that being out in space can actually age the heart somewhat prematurely partly uh, uh, or really mostly as a result of microgravity that can actually alter the shape of the heart and how it works and how strong it is. Um, think of it this way. When you're, when you're here on Earth, your heart is more elongated as it's working against gravity, and that resistance, sort of like strength training in a gym, is good for it. But in microgravity, there's just a lot less resistance, and so the heart just doesn't have to work as hard. And over time, as a result, the heart kind of goes through these series of changes. Um, the heart, and which is a muscle, it can actually atrophy a bit, it gets weaker, and the blood in your body, which the heart is pumping, it tends to hang out in the head and upper torso a little bit more than it does here on Earth. So that differential can also over time change the shape of the heart as it distributes uh, blood around the body in, in slightly different ways. And that 
can present some issues, given our bodies and hearts were, were really designed through evolution of thousands of years to operate here on Earth. Up there, very different story. And so, so Nadia's work is basically to, to find out how to account for that and basically improve space medicine. And it's often with that wearable technology. I mentioned in the beginning she was wearing a headband. Um, that's kind of part of it. And yet also, get this, there is a vaccine that she's working on that could help astronauts ward off some of that cardiovascular disease that sets in while in space that also could one day be applied to those who stick around here on this planet. So without further ado, let me give you a little bit of a taste of that conversation with Nadia, who's just a really interesting person at that Mars Desert Research Station. For me, you know, I was born and raised in Morocco. I never even considered uh, space as something that I could, I never considered being here yeah. a possibility. So while preparing for my candidacy exam for my doctoral degree, I came across a paper that was describing the similarities between cardiovascular aging and space travel. So basically what happens is when you are in microgravity in the International Space Station, your cardiovascular system ages by 20 years for each six months you spend continuously in microgravity. 20 years. 20? Yeah, 20 years. So it's, it's very dangerous actually because if you spend one year there, your cardiovascular system is aging by almost 40 years. Of course, there are you know, individual differences between people, yeah. but um, I would say that's a very good uh, what average. That, what does that attribute to? Huh? Just lack of, lack of gravity? Or? So yeah, lack of gravity. So if you think about the anatomy of our system, we've got the vena cava and the aorta, which are mm -hmm. the, the big, big blood vessels in our in our closer to our heart so one of them is taking the oxygenated blood out and the other one is bringing the deoxygenated black, uh, blood back to the heart you know through the lungs to get oxygen um, if you think about us being here when we have gravity we've got gravity pulling the blood down to our lower peripheries to the blood vessels all over our yeah. our body to the, our legs etc we are evolved to, to work really well in, in this environment, but when we grow to microgravity, because there is a lack of gravity, the heart doesn't have to work really hard to pump blood and to, it's just basically doesn't have to work as hard as when you are here. So this is why they have two hours exercise, mandatory exercise every single day to try to, you know, work the heart and the muscles. So once you come back to earth, it starts to work hard again and they have to go through like serious rehab to get back to a little bit of normalcy. But also the shape of the heart uh, in on earth, it's like, a, I want you to think of a balloon that is filled with water compared to a balloon that is filled with air. So even the shape of the heart changes in microgravity. So instead of like a like a drop with an apex in the bottom as a heart, it becomes like a balloon and heart failure can happen as well. It's just a matter of selecting astronauts that have less susceptibility to a certain uh, degree of deterioration. Like say for example, uh, somebody is susceptible to hypercholesterolemia, for example, uh, which is high uh, cholesterol levels which will put them at higher risk of developing atherosclerosis, which will put them at higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, then they might not be suitable to travel to space for three years. Um, it's a matter of compliance. You know, when you have high pressure in one system for so long, think about it as a balloon. If, uh, if you put less than the maximum level of, of uh, volume in a balloon, you can still have that compliance of it coming back. Yeah. But if you, dam if you kind of like keep it there like that for a long time, think about it, 
elasticity. Exactly. The elasticity is lost and then damage happens that you cannot reverse. Um, the other thing that happens is re you know, radiation damage. So um, people can have cancer a lot faster in space than, than it happens on Earth, as, as you may know already. And osteoporosis is the other thing, which is the loss of uh, bone, bone mass. Again, because you don't have to work the muscles, the sorry, the, the skeleton so hard. Like here, it's supporting our our muscles and everything on Earth. But when you're there floating, uh, it starts to lose. You start to lose calcium really, really fast. And again, going back is the calcium high calcium levels in the blood exacerbates cardiovascular disease because it's absorbed into the endothelium and causes more atherosclerosis. So it's it's a circle. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you were just through the library one day and came across <laughs> a, a, a paper that, that talked about the impact of space on the cardiovascular system yeah. that, that propelled you into, I mean, it, it, walk me through that moment a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, being in academic research, I know, the, you know, it, it moves very, very slow. Uh, you need a lot of funding and you need a lot of, you know, you can spend literally 10 years working on one paper. So. I know that there is a race to go to space and you can't send astronauts to space until you solve this issue with cardiovascular disease. And I know there is a lot of funding in space travel. So I was thinking space agencies across the world will have to solve this issue. Otherwise they can't send astronauts, you know, for, for um, missions beyond low Earth orbit. By doing that, you're solving a problem for astronauts, but also you're solving the, the problem the healthcare issue that, sorry, the leading cause of death on Earth. Even during the pandemic, cardiovascular disease is still the leading cause of death globally. And so it, for me, it was a win-win situation. I'm, I'm working on this vaccine that I, you know, I, I worked on and I developed and my prof has a patent on it, etc. But, you know, if you solve that problem for astronauts, you're solving the leading cause of death on Earth. So for me, it was a win-win situation and I wanted to contribute to it, doing maybe, you know, 0.001% of, uh, of contributions, but not... But, I mean, is it, mm -hmm. isn't it a bit of a different problem? How, how, how is, the, um, how is what, what the hard experiences in space mm -hmm. applicable to... To my vaccine? You can give the vaccine that I developed to astronauts instead of... So it's a, a vaccine? It's a cardioprotective vaccine, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's basically... Uh, I can tell you a little bit about it, but I won't go into the details. It's um, it's no, called heat shock protein. It, okay, heat shock protein twenty seven is okay. basically a protein that is we all we all um, we all have. Uh, women have a little bit more up until menopause, and then they become worse. It's a downstream signaling of estrogen. So when you exercise, you release a lot of heat shock protein twenty seven. Traditionally, it's been looked at as a, as a chaperone protein. So when something is wrong with your body in terms of other proteins, this heat shock protein kind of attaches to that protein and fixes it. Um, okay. And makes makes you know makes sure that this like protein that, like elicited like when you get in a sauna and then you jump in a cold shower type of thing. Yes, exactly. So that's like one of you know one of the things that increases heat shock protein is heat or exercise. Yeah. But also what increases it is a stressor. Like for example, you go and eat a whole panofe pie or something like that it also increases because it's a stressor on the body something that you're not meant to be doing sure. if you're stressed out because of work you also get an, get an increased level of these proteins and it's not just uh, heat shock protein 27 there are like 400 or right. you know different proteins a negative aspect though of that where's exercise that's be more positive 
Uh, it's it's positive because when you have higher level of of this heat shock protein, then you're kind of protect. It's almost like a you're you're releasing chaperones out there. If something is wrong with your body, they go and fix it. Okay. The only problem for me that I realized almost at the end of my doctoral work is that if you have cancer, that's really that if you have like a tumor, it's not good because when you have higher levels of heat shock proteins, the cancer uses it to protect itself from the immune system. So that's like for me when this vaccine becomes available to the world, hopefully soon, then we have to screen people for tumors, making now, sure they don't have tumors. The thing that, that comes to mind immediately is if you're in space, your risk of cancerous tumors is probably more elevated. Yeah, but you have to be screened before. So again, we have to be monitored continuously for anything like that. Right. But you do have higher levels of, of, uh, of cancer uh, incidences. Have, I mean, if you play in a place like Mars, you might not have anything legal in there. There yeah. Year or so, then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so again, you have to screen people for susceptibility to certain cancers. Like for example, for women, if you have the um, BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, I don't think that's a good idea to send somebody with, with that susceptibility, unfortunately. Or, you know, somebody with, you know, really, really high risk of, you know, prostate cancer, or, you know, different, different types of cancers. You have to make sure, you have to be very, very careful. So let's talk a little bit more about this vaccine mm -hmm. and how it works. How it works. Yeah. So uh, it's basically a, an anti-inflammatory and also it, it kind of leads to reduced cholesterol levels. So the, the, the full uh, pathways of how it works, we're still, we still don't know exactly how it works, but uh, what I found from my preclinical trials is that it reduces inflammation. So it increases the anti-inflammatory cytokines, like for example, IL-6, and then it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10. So it's an anti-inflammatory, um, it has anti-inflammatory properties, but also what I found is uh, it kind of, how do I say it? It increases um, the low density lipoprotein receptor in the liver. So you have more receptors in the, in the liver to get rid of the, the bad cholesterol, the low, low density lipoprotein, um, lipoproteins from the blood. So it, it helps to reduce cholesterol and it helps to reduce inflammation. For you to get atherosclerosis, you need both of these things to, to be happening at the same time. You can have high cholesterol, but if you don't have inflammation, then you may not have atherosclerosis. You can have inflammation, but if you don't have oxidized lipoproteins, you may not have atherosclerosis. But when you have both of them at the same time and higher radiation, mm. then you have more available modified lipoproteins to basically um, penetrate into the, the um, you know, endothelial layer of yeah. the blood vessels. Is the liver particularly susceptible to, to, to solar radiation more so than other organisms? Um, I am not sure, but I, I think what I can say with certainty is that every single, bo every single organ in the body um, is affected negatively sure. by space travel. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. So you, you take this, you take this vaccine, say, mm -hmm. prior to, to space travel, um, it increases your capacity to ward off cardiac problems. Potentially, uh, right now it's not been tested in humans yet. I've only oh, tested it in preclinically. Pre yeah. Well, that does it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And just as a reminder, all of these conversations, or at least many of them, will be folded into a book project. So stay tuned for that. Subscribe to this podcast. I'm David Ariosto, and thanks so much for listening and, and joining us and exploring this exciting next phase of where we're going. Mm -hmm.